Hey everybody, just wanted to get ahead of this episode to let you know that this episode will contain adult language, uh, potentially contain adult themes, and will have story spoilers for the Bayonetta franchise, at least the first three games, along with some minor story spoilers for Magic's newest set, March of the Machine. Seems like everything these days has been just a madness of putting multiverses into everything. Whether it be Rick and Morty, uh, you've got the new Doctor Strange movie, Multiverse of Madness, or Mania, or something like that. I don't know, I'm trying my best not to get sued by Disney, so just pretend I said the right name. It seems like so many things have to deal with like the concept of other worlds and dimensions, and what could be. But this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, multiverse theory, whether it be the theoretical sciences, is something that is so prevalent that on today's episode, I felt like I was going to take a minute and we're going to go through what multiverse theory is, and I've got three separate examples to help us fully understand what it means by using a card game, some mythology, and a video game series. Let's dive in, shall we, on today's episode of Cavalcade of Tales. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Cavalcade of Tales, where we're going to be talking everything multiverse. Uh, this episode is going to have a lot of theoretical physics, and so I apologize in advance if anything is wrong or seems weird, because I am not a theoretical physicist. Uh, I specifically talk about how I am the millennial with a history degree, not a science degree. Um, but I'm going to do my best today to go through what the multiverse theory is in like the physics side of it, and then try to explain it by using the stories that we like to tell. Because in the end of the day, that's, in my opinion, what history is really good for it's kind of trying to explain how something happened or something to make sense of something just by telling a story okay multiverse theory um if anybody's curious how i got this information it's a hundred percent a cute little video and transcript i got off of britannica.com because if there's anybody i trust to teach me anything it's the british because i love their accents and they tend to be all the documentarians, so I'm going to trust them. Um, if I somehow have any theoretical physicists listening to me and they have a different way of explaining it, um, by all means, please explain it to me, but only explain it to me if you can explain it as though I were a big-ass toddler because I am not good with science. So the way multiverse theory works is that... There are three different proposed physical models for the universe and the way it is structured. And by understanding how our universe is structured, it allows these theories to think about our universe in space in relation to other universes. And what I've done today with my limited understanding is taken each of the three theories and found a coinciding ref multiverse media that I can use to attempt to explain it. And that is 
our shared goal today. Uh, we're in this together. I This is by far some of the most research I've done on an episode. I have 14 pages of notes, so we're just going to get in and get to it, shall we? So theory one is known as bubble universes or black hole universes. The basic idea is that some universes are so goddamn far away that we as sentient beings couldn't even perceive them because there's no way for us to understand something that is so far away. Or they exist within a black hole because we barely know how black holes work. I sure as hell don't know how a black hole works. Um, sometimes you see this concept of like the going through the black hole brings you to the other side in movies. And I think that's the type of theory this is. But this theory was built based off of trying to explain like, okay, if we're trying to figure out how our universe works, why was our universe with the Big Bang looking at the spirally scientifically? Why was it so good at making stars and galaxies? And as far as I can tell, it's kind of a cop out. <laughs> Because it's like, this universe is good at making stars because we are the correct universe where the laws of physics exist in a way that stars can be formed. And it's kind of like, okay. It's, it's a way of saying like the each pocket, each bubble of a universe is essentially exists in the way it does because it has the rules that allow it to exist in that way which i guess makes sense i it, again it feels like a cop-out kind of to me but all of the theories i'm bringing you today there is no experimental evidence on um but even in the britannica.com article it said that this one is the weakest of the three theories and I guess saying, well, uh, it just does because it can uh, definitely seems like a weak theory in my book. But anyway, so the way I'm going to explain bubble theory is through a uh, fun little card game you may have heard of called Magic the Gathering. So Magic the Gathering is currently uh, celebrating, I believe it's 24. 5th or 30th anniversary it's celebrating a big round number this year and the concept of magic gathering and the story that the game has interwoven is that each <coughs> excuse me each set takes place in its own contained like pocket dimension and world called planes and each plane has a different set of guidelines set of rules in they also use the magic at their disposal differently. And they all have their own spheres of influence. The, uh, the thing with this one and why I chose this one for bubble theory is that travel between the universes is possible, but it's very difficult. Um, we've been shown only two ways to do so. <clears throat> Uh, the first is an in-game mechanic called a planeswalker. These are beings that uh, at one point were akin to gods who are able to walk between planes using a thing called a spark. 
Um, the second way is a more recent phenomena, and this is where we get into the uh, most recent magic set in story, March of the Machine. So in the world, so I'm going to do a very quick lore thing. I'm not super heavily into magic lore. I only started playing the game in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, but from what I understand, there is, there is a plane known as New Phyrexia. And they are a mechanized group that wish to assimilate all planes under this one concept of perfection or it is, as they call it completion uh, they do this by spreading a black ichor substance called glistening oil um, they've in the past they've done sets where phyrexia has invaded before but this newest one the way that they're invading and bridging the gaps between these things is through a large tree known as the realm breaker which is essentially a mechanized tree that branches will break between planes and essentially pop the bubbles so that their forces can get into them. I know that sounds weird. Um, Big-ass trees connecting uh, dimensions is not a new concept. Um, uh, Norse mythology is all centered around a tree. We'll touch upon that later. And also, it's not the first time in magic that there's been a tree that is brought together worlds. I think that was kind of the foreshadowing they've done for this one. Because the first magic set released in 2021 was a set called Kaldheim, which was set in a Norse mythology-based world. And in that, because it was Norse mythology-based, they had a thing called the um, World Tree, and the there was a Phyrexian invader on that plane, and they kind of got the inkling of like, okay, if we have a large central item that can connect these separate worlds or separate planes, that'll make it easier for us to go in and fuck shit up. Uh, Magic the Gathering, since it is a 25 to 30 year old game, has like well over a hundred planes I believe at this point like it is a massive multiverse so what I did for examples for this one I wanted to give a couple examples in each one of like different pocket of the different universes or and whatnot so how I decided to do this one is I bought five packs of the new set March of the Machine in each pack there is at least at least one some of them had multiple of these cards called battles and it is invasion of X and the X is a certain plane. So I bought five packs, pulled out all the battle cards, and used those planes as for my example. So I have, I believe I have five or, I have more than five. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, seven. I have seven examples for you today. Uh, some have more information than others. Some worlds are more fleshed out um, because some of them have had more stuff go on in previous magic stories. Um, but I'm going to go over some examples for you today, some different little pocket dimensions to show how varied they are. And that kind of shows this bubbles of you can have this place that is like completely buck wild in this way. And then you have this other place that's who the hell knows.
For example, our first plane is known as Ravnica. This is a very popular plane. It is uh, a large skitty, skitty, cityscape planet. Um, it, the plane is known and called after its main city, which is known as the city of Ravnica. Um, this plane is heavily influenced by law magic and hierarchical structures. It was ruled for 10 millennia through a thing called the Guild Pack, where 10 guilds uh, run the city in different ways um, based off of uh, two-color magic pairs, because magic has five colors. And if you pair two, the most common way to discuss a two-color combination is to use a Ravnik and Guild pair. For example, I really like playing blue and red, and that's the Is It Guild. Uh, they do. They work like the boilers and are mad scientist fuckers. Um, in the story, there was a big thing where the guild pact fell apart during the Deca Millennial celebration, and the city just went into chaos because there was no more this law magic that kept the plane running. Through the authority of these ten guilds, just fucking vanished. Um, they it was later found out that by going through a trial, uh, someone could become the Living Guild Pact, and their essentially their word became law. So as long as you could, you would go and be like, "Hey, Mister Guild Pact, I want to." I say Mister because both of them have been male. Um, Mr. Guildpact, sir, I would like it so that um, the uh, is it people uh, need to stop their explosions after 10 p.m. so people can sleep and be like, no more explosions after 10 p.m. and the is would have to follow that. Uh, the first Living Guild Pact was a uh, favorite and long-running character named Jace, who is a planeswalker from a different plane. However, during the War of the Spark, um uh jace was unable to fulfill his duties as the living guild pack because he was part of a planeswalker group that tried to protect the multiverse this is so fucking convoluted <laughs> this is a card game i'll have you know um that has this extremely complicated thing and some people like to make fun of Yu-Gi-Oh for all that pharaoh shit anyway um so what happened was they resurrected a dragon who uh, named Niv Mizzet, who was the leader of said Izzet Guild, and made him the new guild pact. Uh, in the latest set, um, the Realm Breaker was put through the Senate building, and one of the recently completed uh, villains, who was a planeswalker named Braska, uh, had a personal vendetta against it, so she went after this guild, saying that the citizens had to be blinded for every single Gorgon whose eyes were cut out, because she was a Gorgon and she uh, wanted to give power to the people. Um, however, her forces were repelled uh, between niv power and a sonic weapon attuned to the Phyrexian oil. Next plane is one called Vryn. Uh, this is the home plane of the uh, Jace, who I just mentioned. Um, it is powered by a series of magical rings which store magical energy in them, and then that energy is kind of channeled through and is used to power cities ran by Magic Elite from the Amphenin League. Uh, less is known about this plane because the main 
draw to this plane is like there was this main character who you know did his thing and then got the fuck out uh but when attacked by phyrexia in this most recent set uh the way that they repelled them is blowing up the mage rings so there is a chance that we might come back and see what will happen to these people now that their main source of power has been destroyed to save them the third plane is known as moag this plane is a bountiful nature plane inhabited by dryads centaurs and tree folk um in terms of the magic storyline as a whole this is technically known as the second phyrexian invasion there was a first phyrexian invasion over a millennia ago and there was a character named urza who actually visited this plane and he's just like y'all need to be careful of these assholes named the phyrexians they're bad news however since it's been a millennia the only creatures that remembered this warning were the tree folk so they were determined not to make the mistake of being completed. However, as of this moment, with my limited knowledge, I have no idea the fate of Moag. The fourth plane is known as Pyrulia. So this is where I, uh, the concept of the bubble universe is where the structure of the planets are very different. Really comes into play because the previous one you just kind of have the previous three they're just you know kind of like earth facsimiles but with like bits of changes like you've got you know the whole planet's covered in cities you've got beautiful lush forest lands and then you've got like settlements surrounded by like large rings in pyrulia it's a densely forested sphere that surrounds a star as its core the inhabitants of the plane live on the interior surface of the sphere, while on the outside of the sphere is extremely large plant life. Um, this plane was targeted because it, during the first Phyrexia timeline, a bad guy named Yogmoth was shown this plane as a means of being introduced to the fact that there are other planes that exist, and therefore having phyrexia is not enough pyrulia's fate as all is also unknown to me at the moment our next plane is one called amenket this one has a little bit more lore uh this is an ancient egypt themed uh plane that is a essentially a big ass fucking desert and it was once ruled by the elder dragon planeswalker and villain of war of the spark Nico bolus Originally, the citizens of this plane uh, spent all their time training to try to reach, you know, max physical fitness so that they could enter the trials of the gods because they all, everyone lived in one major oasis city along with the gods waiting for the approach of the second sun because it is said when the second sun rests between the horns of the uh, god pharaoh monument, the dragon lord will appear and so what they did to prepare for this was that they would fight to the death in these trials and then be turned into a special zombie army known as the eternals because they would be not only have this great strength but they'd have a loyalty to this dragon god however once you learn that your uh, main deity is a big fuck off dragon with plans to conquer the multiverse 
uh, the people left the city and tried to create a city in the desert. Um, there was much fighting, and during the uh, aforementioned War of the Spark storyline, uh, Nicobolas fell and is trapped in some detention sphere kind of thing. Uh, so the people have started a new city called Hecama. So in the newest set, when Phyrexia invaded, the remaining few gods, uh, one's name is Hezaret, uh, banded with the survivors of the Bolas regime and uh, started attacking the armies. This plane was deemed very important. So one of the five main leaders of the Phyrexian uh, army, which are known as Praetors, from the Roman system, a Praetor is, that means first. Or like, it's like first man. Uh, so one of the Praetors known as Vorinclex, uh attacked this plane and they learned that the specialized armor that they were putting on the zombie soldiers, which was known as Lazotep, is resistant to the glistening oil. Then, to the surprise of the people, uh, two of their kind of like malevolent gods, the Scarab and Logus gods, came in and held off the army so that their last remaining god, Hazaret, could set the oil on fire, burning the forces and saving the plane. Our next plane, uh, I have a personal connection with because this plane was introduced, when this plane was introduced, this magic set, this is when I started playing. And also, based off the themes, it's something I love to pieces, because guess what? It's folklore and Arthurian legend themed. It's known as Eldrain. The plane is woven with wild magic that is fought over by two opposing yet intertwined forces. And what it is is that there used to be a council of elves that ruled over everything, but then the humans rose up, fought them off, and set up five courts known as Ardenvale, Vantress, Lochthwain, Embrith, and Garenberg, one for each of magic's five colors. And the way it worked is that there is this creature known as the Questing Beast, and it takes a man and a woman from every generation, and it sets them off on the quest. And what it is is your quest is to become knighted in all five jurisdictions. Jurisdictions, okay. Weird choice of words. Anyway, and once you were able to get knighted in all five, you would become the high king and queen of the area. When we meet, when we first get to Eldraine, it is ruled by High King Kenrith. Uh, however, his wife, whose name was Linden, was not able to finish all five trials. It is said that she only took care of Ardenvale, which is the white. Um... In the storyline, he gets kidnapped by the planeswalker Oko and gets turned into a stag. His two children, uh, Rowan and Will, go after him, try to figure out what's going on, uh, find their dad, and fight off the hot elf boy who's causing mischief. Um, it, it turns into this big thing called the Wild Hunt, which ends with the ceremonial killing of a stag. And uh, whoopsie fuck, uh, the stag turned out to be their dad. However, luckily for them, the one thing the queen, the current queen was able to do before she failed her other tasks was that she got a special sword of resurrection. Um, she's used it once before because apparently the twins had died in a 
at some point, but she brought them back. But because of the way she brought them back, they are planeswalkers, but they share the same spark, so they can't travel without taking the other one with them. But then she resurrected, resurrect, resurrected uh, the king. During the current uh, Phyrexian invasion, uh, things have gone to shit very quickly. The uh, five courts fell like a house of cards. The Kenrith uh, parents are dead. And the uh, elf queen of Lothwain was even completed. And it's kind of like they're trying to complete major figures on all these planes as like a vassal. However, the Phyrexians were defeated by a disgraced fairy named Rankle, and as soon as the Phyrexians were defeated, uh, the plane was put into a deep sleep by some mysterious sorcerer that we know nothing about. Uh, but we'll find out more about that because one of the uh, projected sets for the rest of this year is a set set in Eldraine, and I am so fucking hyped because I love Eldraine. And this will bring us to our last bubble our last universe, this one is known as Bellanon. Uh, we don't know much about this plane because it's literally been in two sets, and the first one was a special uh, mechanic called Plane Chase, where you would flip over a set. You would have like a special card, and it'd be like, you're in this plane. Well, you're in this plane. This special effect happens to everybody on the board, and you have like a die, and you can roll, uh, roll the die. And depending on it, what you rolled, you'd either planeswalk away, and you'd get a new static effect, or there was a chaos roll, and you would get something weird happen that would involve the plane. But what we do know about Bellanon is that it is a windy plane. I like it's the pictures make it look like the um, like Great Plains area of the United States, that big hunkin' bit in the middle. And it's mainly humanoid creatures live on this plane, but instead of them being just humans, you also have elephant-like humans known as the Loxodon. You have rhino-like humans known as Brokes, and bird-like people known as the Avon. Um, this plane also, again, was came under attack during the second Phyrexian invasion, but not much is known about it overall. Alright, with that all out of the way, it's time to start the second of the three multiverse theories. This one is known as uh, either the extra dimensions or the membrane theory. So this one is a lot more mathematically based. It has to do with string theory. And the issue is that with string theory, it cannot predict the right number of dimensions for the universe that we can perceive. So the way this theory works is that our dimension is a three-dimensional area that is a th like a three-dimensional surface embedded in a larger nine-dimensional like thing. Um, let me just read this straight from my notes because maybe that'll make more sense. Uh, our universe is a three-dimensional surface embedded within a larger super universe with nine spatial dimensions like how a two-dimensional piece of paper can sit within our three-dimensional space. Um, so this is very interesting because uh, it means that these other dimensions could be similar but have like enough differences where like they can follow the same rules 
quote unquote, the quote unquote rules of physics. I don't know why that's getting quotes. I don't it just because I don't know the rules of physics doesn't mean they don't exist. But that they're similar to ours, but not quite the same. So for this set, uh, I touched upon it earlier, but the best way I could find to describe this set is uh, Norse mythology is the best way to describe membrane theory. Because the way Norse mythology structures the world is that there are nine separate like planes of existence that surround a sort of like oh excuse me uh cosmic pillar uh this cosmic pillar being known as yggdrasil which is the world uh, in english is the world tree um i touched upon this is what the world tree and the uh call time magic gathering set i mentioned earlier and also the kind of like the realm breaker is kind of that thing to pop the bubbles in this theory it's not popping bubbles, it is just that there are all these separate dimensions around this larger... So, like, if you think about it, the there are nine worlds in Nordic mythology. So there are these nine three-dimensional spaces are being enveloped in this larger nine-dimensional spatial space. Science people are going to hate the term spatial space, but I'm keeping it. Um, the structure isn't really agreed upon, um, so I, for the purposes of this, I kind of went off of where the nine worlds around Yggdrasil would be in relation somewhat to each other. Um, also, uh, I did not talk at all about the fun uh, creatures that live in the uh, world tree. Um, because this is already going to be long enough because I'm already at 30 minutes and I'm not, I'm just now getting to the second topic, but there is, um, in mythology, there is a big fuck off squirrel who lives in the world tree and he's amazing and I love him and he deserves everything. Anyway, so, um, the first, so the way this is going to work is we're going to, um, I'm just going to go down this list I have. Uh, this will be much quicker, because there are nine of them, but I have a lot less facts. Um, so the first one is known as Niflheim. Uh, Final Fantasy fans out there uh, will remember that from Final Fantasy VII. That is the uh, place that Cloud is from. Uh, but this is Niflheim, the realm of fog and mist. It is the darkest and coldest of the planes. Um, so in the beginning, there was this cosmic void known as the Gingungip. Also... I'm going to fuck up a lot of Nordic words in this section, and I apologize in advance. So this cosmic void known as Ginnungip um, has two separate worlds that came out of it. Uh, the first one being Niflheim, which is the northern one. Um, and this northern one is said to be the source of all cold rivers from the spring Hrelvengemler, or Relv. Vergenmir. Um, this spring is even said to uh, have one of the roots of Yggdrasil in it to uh, provide it with water because uh, big ash trees need water. The other side of the Gunning Gap is Muspelheim, which is the land of fire. 
uh, these both a lot of these worlds will also sound familiar to uh, people who like the new brand of God of War games. I haven't played the second one, so don't you don't have to worry about spoilers on that one. But in the first one, um, you have like that transport room, and you go to Niflheim. You also go to Muspelheim, and Muspelheim is like a combat trial area uh, where you can get some fun items and uh, some great challenges. Uh, ten out of ten, because the combat in the game is clean and so good. Uh, but Muspelheim is the land of fire. It is situated to the south. It is a fiery hellscape that homes fire giants and demons, and they are all ruled by the fire giant known as Sirt. Sirt uh, is the enemy of the main gods of Nordic mythology, which are known as the Asir. And uh, they will uh, hit once Ragnarok or the end of the worlds begin. Sirt uh, is going to reduce their realm to a fiery inferno, which seems redundant. Because I, the only other type of inferno I know is Disco Inferno. I'm trying my best to keep myself off on tangents, but I think the fact that I've started recording these late at night at my time is the where the weird word association is coming from. But um, yeah, so um, this will I'm turn everything, Disco Inferno. Um, the next world is the Domain of the Gods, is known as Asgard. Um, so it's situated, this one is like in a sky. This is kind of like, if you think about a lot of different mythologies, they have the gods living in the sky, whether it be you got your Greek and Roman gods who live up in like a heavenly sphere. Uh, sometimes you can go there on Mount Olympus. It's not as easy to get to them in the Roman version. Um, I don't know where the Roman gods actually live. Probably just in the heavens. Anyway, so inside there are the two main places that the dead go. The first being Valhalla where the chosen warriors go to Joan Odin and the Aesir. Uh, these are the ones that are uh, often brought up by Valkyrie, the warrior angels who are badass and cool. Um, the other half of those who die honorably, because there's a different place for the dishonorable dead, uh, go to a place called Falkenwagner, um, which is also said to, in some traditions is ruled by the goddess Freya, but we will get to her in a minute. Um, I also have to be careful about the amount of times I say Freya because that is my cat's name and she is giving me dirty looks right now. Um, the next one, uh, another fun name for those who are Final Fantasy VII fans, uh, this is Midgar, Home of the Humans. So this is the located in like the middle of the concepts of the world. So like if you're starting to stack worlds on top of each other, you got Asgard, and there's going to be another realm up there with them, and then you go down, and it's Midgar. Uh, it is connected to Asgard, however, by something known as the Bifrost, or the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, Midgar is surrounded by a large, impassable ocean, which is inhabited by the Midgard Serpent, or it is also known... I used to know its name off the top of my hand. I don't want to say it's Bjormungandr, but let me... Um, it is, but the serpent is so large that it wraps around the entire world. That's not how I spell Midgar. This is what happens when you try to type on your phone with one hand. No, not five goddess Permoy. I don't even know what that is. Um, so the first two humans who um, envelop this world, uh, who are known as Ash and Emboa, 
were sent to Midgard by um, Odin and his two brothers, and they were uh, made from trees. Yes, I was right. It was Jormungandr, by the way. The Midgar serpent or the world serpent. Um, it's kind of known as like an Ouroboros because like sometimes it seemed like eating its own tail. Uh, but he is Jormungandr. He. I don't want to misgender a giant fuck off snake. Um, Jormungandr uh, is uh, set to fight Thor at the end of the world in Ragnarok. He's also a helpful friend in uh, the God of War 2018. Um, next is Jotunheim. Uh, it's known as the home of the giants. This is a rockly, densely forested area on the outskirts of this impassable ocean that Midgar is surrounded by. Um, it is said to be very rocky and have no fertile land for crops, so the giants tend to live off of like berries and what they can hunt. Uh, this is where the trickster god Loki originally comes from, and the giants and Asiatr often have a very fluctuating relationship. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Uh, for example, a, when a, they were building the halls of Valhalla, a giant came to the Asiatr and he's like, I can build you these kick-ass uh, gates, but I get to marry Freya. And the gods are like, you can have her if you do it in three days. And he's like, bet. So he starts doing the job, and by the middle of the second day, the Asir are like, oh shit, he's actually going to do this. So the plan is, is that the trickster god Loki transforms themselves. I'm going to use... Um, gender uh, neutral and gender fluid terms for Loki because it's widely acknowledged now that as a deity they are gender fluid because they often will go in between genders for whatever suits their purposes for what they're trying to do. For example in this story uh, Loki turns into a female mare and seduces the giant's horse and so the instead of helping the giant build these gates, his horse is just off fucking Loki. And whoops, the giant doesn't finish the job in time. And the Asiatr win because they get their gates and uh, Freya doesn't have to marry a giant. Um, however, Loki does fall pregnant and uh, gives birth to Slefnir, the seven-legged horse that pulls Odin's chariot. While I'm on the subject of fun Norse stories um, and Loki... There's also a, uh, another time where Odin, uh, not Odin, Thor loses his hammer. This is a common story, but um, this is just too fun not to tell. So Odin, god damn it, it's not Odin. Thor loses his hammer. And the giants are just like, you can have the hammer back if we get Freya. Because Freya is a fertility and beauty goddess and everybody wants to fuck her. Not you, Freya. Not you, honey. No, stop looking at me like that. Nobody wants to fuck you. You're a cat. I love you, but no. You're an indoor cat now. You're not going to get fucked by strangers. So what they do is Loki's like, okay, well, I'm part giant, so I can be trusted as an envoy. And they dressed Thor up like a woman so that Thor went posed as Freya. And the giants are just like, she's kind of burly, but like, I don't know, we're kind of into that. And it's like, no tea, no shade. Get it, girl. Um, and then as soon as Thor is able to grab the hammer after this long deception of tricking this giant into thinking that he's Freya, uh, they kill all the giants and uh, 
it's, it's just a fun little anecdote. The Giants also have a version of the Hall of Valhalla known as Udegard, where the leader of the Giants, which is uh, coincidentally known as Udegard Loki, lives. Um, and they also have a direct line to Asgard, similar to how the Midgardians, I don't think that's the word, the residents of Midgar, Sector 7, uh, they have the Rainbow Bridge, the uh, Jotunheim Giants have a waterway, which is unable to freeze over. The next realm is interesting because there's little is spoken about it about this realm. It's known as uh, Vanaheim. And this realm only really comes up because there's a l group of gods known as the Veneer. Not to be confused with veneers, which are the things you put on your teeth to make them look nicer. Um, these are sorceress gods who know magic and can tell the future. Um, there was a... We don't know where the plane is, and so we don't know much about it, but um, what we do know is that the Veneer and the Asir, uh waged war against each other, and the Veneer lost. So as a uh, peace, they sent over three gods, uh, Njord, Threy, and Threya, as a token of peace. And um, they all got their own jobs. I don't remember what Njord's job is, but Freya watches over the dead who are honorable but didn't make it into Valhalla, and Frey will come into play in the next plane. And that plane is known as Alfheim, or the Lair of the Light Elves, because alliteration. Um, so in terms of like spatial planes, uh, Alfheim is located in the sky along with Asgard. Um, it is, so the Light Elves are these uh, transcendent beings that sometimes are seen as guardian angels, but uh, also can either help or hinder humans depending on their mood, which is fucking goals. I love a species that could not give a shit whether they help or hinder humans with magic. Um, but they're often used as like muses for poetry, um, and they are ruled by Frey, who is... Freya's brother. Um, we've got two realms left. The next one is the uh, Svartalheim. Svartalheim. The Den of the Dwarves. This one is mainly an underground. They tend to live in caves, underneath mountains, in rocky deposits. Uh, this is um, These are dwarves. They are master craftsmen uh, ruled by Hridmar until he was killed somehow. I don't know why I wrote that down like that, even though I have no idea how he died. I just know that he did rule, and now he's dead. But the dwarves uh, have a good relation with the Aesir because they made the magical near drop near, and they also were the ones who crafted uh, the spear of Odin, Gungnir. The final realm, which is even lower than uh, Svartalfheim, is known as Helheim, which is the realm of the dishonorable dead. Uh, so what it is is, uh, first off, this um, in a very creative name, this is ruled by Hel, H-E-L, who is a frost giant who is the daughter of Loki. And it is those who died in dishonorable fashions, like cowards and deserters, or those who were just general shitbags, like thieves, murderers, and rapists, 
uh, were sent to Helheim. And once Ragnarok begins, uh, these Helheim recipients, recipients, denizens, uh, who are going to be raised as an army known as Draugr, which is like the Nordic zombie. And what they'll do is they will assist Hell in her attack on the Asir once they are driven from the Disco Inferno of their home. And that is our second example. So the final theory is the one that's kind of the most used and the one that arguably also makes the most sense, especially personally, I believe this one makes the most sense. And this is the Many Worlds theory, which is a heavily uh, quantum mechanics based. Um, so the way it works is in quantum mechanics, physicists don't understand how the collapse of wave function works which is a string of words that I have no idea what it means, I, but science. Um, so the way this works is this hypothesis proposes that every single positive, possible alternative timeline that exists and occur in a, like a long branching pathway over what could... Um, I have no idea how this relates to the term I heard on Rick and Morty one time called the central finite curve. I'm sure there's something to do there. Rick and Morty and the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, are two very prime examples of different ways that are like multiverses have happened. A lot of times when you have this concept of a multiverse, it's the many worlds theory where there's like the slight deviations that change is what makes this other dimension. Um, real quick example before I get into the, the one I took notes on. Um, if you remember uh, popular TV show Futurama, there's an episode in the fourth season where the professor makes a box and inside the box is a parallel universe. And the way that universe, there are essentially two universes that are exactly the same, except every coin flip produces the opposite result. Um, for example, um, in that universe bender the robot that we know he is a silver robot but in this parallel universe he's a gold robot and you find out that he flipped a coin to figure out if his finish was going to be silver or gold um this one also is the theory that has the is the most likely to actually within our lifetime due to the way scientific experimentation and the types of machinery we're able to build could be tested in our life because we can control and manipulate ever larger quantum mechanical systems and labs which sounds really cool but I have no fucking idea what it means none whatsoever so for this theory to be honest when I started the concept for this episode uh it all stemmed from the fact that my favorite game of 2022 is a gem that came out in October known as Bayonetta 3. <laughs> and I have a lot of feelings and stuff about it, so I needed an excuse to use a public forum where I had a microphone to talk about my, how much this game is amazing. Um, which I will be seeding into this as I talk about it. Um, so the central, this is where 
Um, if you have not played Bayonetta 3 and you like the other two, or if you uh, want to know about... Uh, you could arguably play Bayonetta 3 and have no fucking idea what happened in the first two. It's such a good game. It's such a good action game. Platinum Games is a fucking godsend. I love so much of the stuff they put out. and I, Bayonetta 3 is my favorite game of 2022. And that's even though Elden Ring came out last year. Don't get me wrong, I liked Elden Ring. It took me 100 fucking hours to beat it and actually didn't beat it until 2023. But Bayonetta 3, arguably my favorite game of 2022. And I want to talk about it. So in this game, the way the multiverse theory works is the big bad is a person, an entity known as the Singularity. And what we find out is that they have created a homunculi army that is invading different worlds, destroying them, trying to take out what's something known as the Arch Eve and Arc Adam. There's going to be a shit. This is where all the Bayonetta 3 spoilers come through. So if you want to know the story of that without the spoilers, sorry. There's also going to be a lot of opinions in here. And one thing that isn't technically confirmed, but I believe it is, and I'm the one with the microphone, so it's real now so one of the key things to start out with is the fact that this bayonetta for bayonetta 3 this is where we are getting slightly into fan theory or headcanon this bayonetta 3 is the cereza from the first game Which sounds like an insane sentence, but let me explain. The first two Bayonettas have a lot to do with time travel. And that it worked out well as a duology, and I was interested to see where they were going to go with this third one, because the first two kind of interwove well with each other because of this time travel aspect. But in the first game, you were introduced into a little girl known as Cereza. What it is, is that Cereza is actually the real name of main character Bayonetta. That is her birth name. And what it is, is that little girl has been brought from the past to the future by the big bad, Balder, who is Bayonetta's father, um, and technically Cereza's father, to help awaken the power of the... I can't remember if it's the right or the left eye. The power of the eye in Bayonetta. So what happens is, is with that timeline, with that Bayonetta being brought to the future and learning about the future, she would then go to the past and have knowledge of her future, which would create a timeline split as what would happen if, um, with the diverging events. Because um, as anybody who uh, used to do tarot card readings professionally will tell you, the simple act of knowing the future will automatically change it. So, in my headcanon and the way I'm operating this episode, that little Cereza is who grows up to be the protagonist of Bayonetta 3. Because there was a big hubbubaloo. Because in Bayonetta 2, Bayonetta 2 is essentially a long-ass game where not only do you stop a little boy named Loki from destroying the world, um you have to go to hell to save your friend Jean, and there's a lot of, like, homo, like, sapphic subtext. Ooh, that's a, sapphic subtext is a really good section of words. 
sapphic subject that's a fun that that would have been a fun name for a podcast if you guys use that let me know um and a lot of people were very angry because in bayonetta 3 the sapphic subjects is gone and a lot of people are just like they're doing queer erasure and now that bayonetta loves a man it you know takes her away i'm like hey bisexual women can love men and love women whoever the fuck they want it doesn't matter b she's a fictional fucking character she can fuck who she wants c this is a multiverse game which means because of things we find out at the end of the game when the bayonettas from bayonetta 1 and 2 come to assist bayonetta 3 that means that she is not the same bayonetta as in bayonetta 2 therefore she is not the one with the sapphic subtext she's a completely different bitch that's something i need to get off my chest so the way I'm going to do examples for this one and to show the divergence of timelines is I'm going to go through all the Bayonetta variants we meet in the game and rank them because they're amazing and Bayonetta's amazing and um, if it wasn't already quarter past 11 at night and I didn't have to work I would play some Bayonetta 3 after this because it is a beautiful game and I love it so very much and everything is great and I love it so much. So. Um, in terms of these variants, except for a few, um, uh, the wiki I use, the Bayonetta wiki, uh, discussed all the new variants we met in three as Bayonetta, Beta, and then a number. So for example, the first one we meet is Bayonetta, Beta Zero. So this is, she looks similar to the protagonist in Bayonetta 1 and we you can kind of they kind of like trick you into thinking that this might be the bayonetta from bayonetta one however there is a few key differences like for example her mole beauty mark is actually under the wrong eye and her weapons which um at first could just seem like a careless trans mistranslation but you find out later isn't our code witchingham fair um huge plot spoiler that was isn't like very hard to figure out if you can put two and two together uh but the new character you meet viola this is viola's birth mother and this is the universe where viola is from uh the bayonetta beta zero joined the resistance against the singularity however she was killed in the line of action and she dies in the opening sequence uh, but not before bestowing viola with just a little bit of extra magic power before she gets sent to a new dimension um, Viola is the one who lets us know not only is the multiverse thing a whole fucking big ass deal because there's always got to be that one character who like blows everybody's mind with the there are more worlds out there but she's like we need to go to these other worlds and get these infernal gears and once we get enough of them we can go to the alpha universe where singularity is from and fuck his shit up so he stops destroying all these other universes because he's literally the, the homunculi have this like weird white honestly kind of spunk looking like fog that just erases everything and it's gross and terrible and it damages you if you touch it and it sucks because it's a lot of like big platforming sections where you're writing big fuck off demons and it's hard to avoid sometimes even though they want you to do it because it's a little achievement but i'm bad at video games so the next uh, i want to say four at least four yeah, the next four variants of Bayonetta are all the Bayonetta variants you meet hopping from dimension to dimension during the game. 
The first one is Bayonetta Beta 1. This Bayonetta is like dressed up like a fun Harajuku rollerblader. Uh, she has a big pink ponytail. She wears like uh, booty shorts and a crop top sweatshirt. Uh, it, this is my favorite costume of all the Bayonetta variants. There's a very close second that I'll touch upon later. Um, but currently in my game, uh, this is the outfit my playable Bayonetta is wearing because it's a fun look. Uh, this Bayonetta, um, each one resides in like a different part of the world. So like the traditional Bayonetta, Bayonetta's one, two, and this one and three, uh, are resided in New York. And they have uh, Enzo, who is like this little toady fuck, who's an undertaker and also is our like little bitch. And he comes up in another alternate universe. However, this first Bayonetta Beta 1 is from Shibuya. Um, we find out that she only recently finished her witch training and her main weaponry are these uh, yo-yo looking weapons. Uh, that she uses in all... So in the Bayonetta universe, uh, the witches, which are known as Umbern witches, are contracted with demons who get to eat their heart when they die. And that's why you have to go literally go into hell to save your friend John, because in the second game, it's Christmas Eve, and you're out shopping and uh, angels attack and then you summon your infernal demon but then it uh, breaks free of your chains and Jean dies trying to protect you and you have to go on a sapphic journey to protect get your quote-unquote best friends they were romance um, in this game you can contract a bunch of different demons and you kind of like gain your arsenal and more weapons to use to vary the combat in each world by meeting that world's bayonetta and forming a temporary contract with their demon because like technically you are bayonetta and their contracts with bayonetta so like they're not breaking any rules they're just kind of double dipping so in Beta 1's case, she uses the Ignis RNA yo-yo weapon, and her contracted demon is known as Phantasmarandene, who is a big fuck-off spider. Um, there, The yo-yos are also my favorite weapon. I just, I love Beta 1's, like, whole design. She's super fun. It's fun to play with. The, yo the yo-yos are a fun weapon. The platforming with the spider is a little awkward but you could definitely make it work um this bayonetta um unfortunately dies after destroying an iridescent core but uh is then swallowed by a homunculi and then turns into uh arc iridescent uh but not before throwing her weapon over unfortunately spoilers all the bayonetta variants you meet die at some point <laughs> And that's how you get their weapons and demons for the rest of the game. Uh, which is kind of a big fucking oops. So Bayonetta Beta 2 is your second universe. She is dressed, this is like a war-torn China kind of version. She's dressed in what is known as a Gekkan dress, G-E-K-K-A-N. And she commands troops because the way this works is it's like a war-torn great wall of china thing where the humans are fighting back against the homunculi but aren't doing much because homunculi can't really be damaged by human weapons 
Ooh, sorry. Keep yawning. Um, God, I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not boring you. I'm not boring myself. I'm just tired. I worked a full day. Um, this bayonetta originally is a was a carefree woman who didn't really do much, but uh, she. It is said that this world's Luca, who uh, you later learn in the game, is the model for the Adams, the Ark Adams. Um, and a point of contention for a lot of people becoming Bayonetta's main love interest in this game, where it's like they had some flirty going on. And like he, my only complaint about Bayonetta 3 and the way they did the Luca and Cereza, because I prefer to call her Cereza than Bayonetta, um, love is that, and this could be also, you can probably chalk this up to mold the fact that it's a different universe. But in this universe, Luca is taller than Bayonetta, which seems weird. And I don't know if that's because he's, like, part fairy. So he's, like, a magic king kind of asshole. And that's why he gets to be super tall, because in, in the other universes, he's just some fucking dude. And Bayonetta is an Umbran witch who's supposed to be, like, seven feet tall, but in, somehow she's shorter than Luca. That's my main complaint. Is that I'm like, I guess you could complain about multiverse shit, but other than that, like, she should be taller than him. Um, but anyway, Beta 2 is said to have fallen in love with their version of Luca, but he died during the attacks on the homunculi. And when he died, she took up arms and became the general. Uh, she's known as the one-eyed witch because she's a ferocious fighter who wears an eye patch some people believe she lost the eye patch in combat some believe she's using it to hide a greater power no one actually knows why she fucking wears the thing uh she uses the dead end express weapon and summons a huge train known as war train garuan however when fighting the pyrocumulus uh she gets sloppy by thinking that a thing that's uses fire-based attacks would die if dunked in lava and that is not the case the next bayonetta is bayonetta beta 3 uh, this bayonetta is a ruler of a small desert kingdom known as al haram and she's dressed in kind of like flowy silver forms this version you also get to see the alt jean uh, because this Bayonetta is the least experienced in magic. She's still learning. Because she's also a princess. So, like, you don't really want your princess learning how to fight and be on the front lines. And because she's kind of sheltered, she's uh, very adverse to conflict and a bit timid. Which can lead to issues. Um, so, as you go through this world, she becomes more confident in fighting. And she actually has to kill that world's John before she gets absorbed by a homunculi. And then she becomes contracted to Malthus the demon and gains the power of the weapons Simoon. Um, and she actually helps Bayonetta defeat the Stratocumulus, which is a really big fucking homunculi. However, when defeated, the homunculi turns into a black hole. That one does. They don't all do that. But when he turns into a black hole... Uh, our Bayonetta Cereza gets knocked out and is getting pulled in and 
Beta 3 sacrifices herself by using her demon to save Cereza, and she falls into the black hole instead. The next bay, another variant, which is the last one you meet in like a different world before you get to the Alpha Singularity, find out the truth, and then go back to your your world. Uh, this Bayonetta is French, um, which arguably makes her hotter. Um, she's also blonde. She takes after her dad a little more in this dimension. Uh, but she's dressed like a street-performing magician. It's my second favorite costume. If I had to rank the costumes, it would go Harajuku girl, magician, probably the... Al Haram princess and then the Gekken dress last. I have nothing against Chinese clothing, but it's in the original, the first two games, the Gekken dress was something you could get very easily. So I'm kind of just like, I want to, I like the new costumes better because like I've already seen Bayonetta in those dresses. Uh, so Be Beta 4 uh, moonlights as a phantom thief with in her mother rosa which in this universe contrary to the cerezas of both all the universes we've been to plus one two the bayonettas of one two and three her mother's still alive and they are known as papillon d'ombre or the black butterflies and what they're doing is they're stealing back umbran witch artifacts that have been put into museums uh, a cute little thing is they are being chased by Inspector Anzo, which is this uh, universe's version of the little toady air undertaker that Cereza uses to run errands for. Um, in addition to being a fun phantom thief, her hat is part of her weapon, which is known as the Abracadabra. Uh, but she controls the demon known as Mixolonic Kutli. Um, you'll have to forgive me, my uh, Nawaddle is very rusty because I don't do a lot of Aztec or um, not Incan. What's the one before? Mayan. So my Nawaddle is a little not great. Her story is arguably tragic because what happens is, is there's the demon, uh, not demon, the homunculi Perlideus. Uh, who is like who can control citizens and turn them against Cereza? So first, Cereza has to kill Rosa, which is obviously traumatic because you know, essentially we are killing our mother, but in an alternate universe version, and that's really traumatic for Beta Four, who then tries to fight us in addition to being controlled by the Monkey So we have to kill her too, and. All we can do is just take solace in knowing that we're sending her off to the same place as her mother. And then that's the last universe you go to till before you go to the original Alpha universe. Find out that the scientist that you thought was going to help you is actually the one who caused all the big mess. Plot twist. Uh, Bayonetta gets locked in the alpha dimension with viola and luca you find out luca's been this big fucking fairy wolf thing you've been fighting off and on then um you find out he's the arc adam to your arc eve uh you somehow get back to your own dimension and you go to fight the singularity 
uh, he you do well, but he still kicks your ass because you need to have a final act with twists. And the big twist is you are then greeted by two new Bayonettas. The first one being Bayonetta from the original game. Um, they can't technically, because of the whole multiverse thing, there's no way of actually knowing if this is the one you played in during the first game, but for the purposes of this and the headcanon, I'm saying it is. Part of the reason I'm also saying that it is has to do with my headcanon that Cereza is the little girl from the first game, because when the Bayonetta who is meant to be the stand-in for Bayonetta 1 beats you, the first thing she says is, you haven't been crying on me while I've been gone, have you? And all throughout the first game, as Cereza, Bayonetta's constantly being like, I hate crying children, you cannot fucking cry in front of me, bitch, I'm supposed to be this hardcore witch, I no crying in front of me. Um, and yeah, so this is supposed to be either the Bayonetta from the first game or a Bayonetta who was on a very similar timeline to the first game. Um, she looks exactly like Bayonetta Zero, but her beauty marks under the right eye and her guns are the correct ones from the first game, which are known as Scarborough Fair. And she, of course, has the summon Madame Butterfly, which is like the default demon for all the Bay for all the Bayonettas that we play as during the first three games. But to help her is also a short-haired Bayonetta, which is the Bayonetta from Bayonetta 2. Again, this Bayonetta, similar, could be, could come from either the same timeline with a slight switch from the Bayonetta 1 variant. She could be a completely different Bayonetta 2. She could be the, there's a, some speculation she could be in Bayonetta 2 there's a point where you get sent back in time to the time when the Umbran witches are attacked by the angels and you fight along your mother for a while and you get to see the truth of how your mother died and that's how you and Balder join forces to fight against Loki however by being the Bayonetta who went back in time and fought with her mother that creates a time split because anytime you go back in time you create a time split because there's also the version of you of the events where you didn't go back in time so it could be either the Bayonetta 2 that didn't go back in time or the Bayonetta that did because time travel and multiverse theory is a hodgepodge mess um so and just like Bayonetta and Cereza, she uses a four-gun set, but this one is known as Love is Blue. And she's technically contracted to Madame Butterfly, because you can see it in her uh, shadow, because you can see the demon you're contracted to in the shadow of the Bayonetta that you're interacting with. But in terms of fighting, so that you it wouldn't get stale, you use the demon Labolas, which is like a, a big fuck-off dog. And that's Bayonetta 3. It's a great game. People need to cut it some fucking slack because a lot of the things that are bad with it, you can either chalk it to the fact that it's a multiverse thing or um, just shut up and let people enjoy things. Uh, yeah. I love Bayonetta 3. I still need to get Cereza and the Lost Demon. I can't wait to try that out because that's a whole other Bayonetta. I didn't include her in this list because technically, if you be uh, spoiler, if you beat the... If you find the three keys to the storybook that you can bite from Rodan, you get a demo for the game. 
Oh, and at the end of the game, uh, Cereza dies, and uh, her and Luca are dragged into hell. And everybody's like, their love's kind of forced. We don't know anything about how they were together before this fucking dimension. And there's a lot of shit where it's the Ark Adam and Ark Eve, and they're constantly running into each other. And so what if she fucking loves him? Let her fucking love him. This Cereza can love him, be in love with him. It's fine. Uh, and you find out that Viola is Bayonetta's daughter, and the way the game ends, and another complaint of mine, is that it pulls the Devil May Cry trick, where they do a trilogy, and then their concept is the next Bayonetta game, or the fourth game, and the fourth main title game, will have a new protagonist who is like a younger, more hotshot version, and is a bit more punk. If they do do that, I hope they fix her battle scheme, because, oh my fucking god. It's super fun to fight as Bayonetta, but when you fight as Viola, it's a fucking slog. Because she's only got a sword. She's got a... She can transform into a fairy thing, which does some better damage, but other than that, she does a, it sucks to fight as her. But I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about Bayonetta 3, the best game of 2022, but I'm already over an hour on this, so I need to cut it short. And so, but that is Multiverse Theory number three. And that is our Multiverse episode. I want to thank everybody for uh, enjoying this episode. This one's a bit of a long one this week, uh, partially because this is a very dense topic and also because I had a lot of feelings about Bayonetta 3 that I needed to get out of me. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Um, if you want to get in contact with me, either to explain science to me or... Um, I guess uh, we could talk magic. Um, my opinions on Bayonetta 3 are correct, so I'm taking no notes on that fact. Um, but you can hit me up on Instagram as SwampCleric96, and I am also on TikTok as the White Trash Historian. Um, I will see you all next week. Um, I plan these episodes uh, the week of, so I haven't 100% decided yet, uh, but it's probably going to be... Uh, somewhat mon it's definitely gonna have monsters somehow uh whether it be uh yokai part two or some other fun monster mashup i haven't decided yet but uh look forward to that um i don't know if it's gonna if tuesday's gonna be the day i record things i'm still doing this pretty loose goosey but i'm trying to at least upload once a week um once i get the consistency down uh there might be something in the works for coming up soon uh, but yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this. Uh, have a nice and safe week, and uh, thanks for joining me for this uh, long-ass rant about multiverse. Um, yeah, bye!